And welcome back to Big Red in Beijing. In this special episode, we sat down with defenseman Micah Zandihart and coach Doug Dara of Team Canada. Now, Michael, I do have a hunch that this episode in particular would be your favorite. Not to, not to say that there are any favorites, but, you know, it's not like winning a gold medal for your home country. You know, it's not like it means anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it was, it was very special to be able to talk with both of these people, obviously, Olympic champions now for and forever will be. It was, it was great hearing their journey to the Games and really what it meant to represent Canada and Beijing. I also want to add that it was very endearing to see that the Big Red, the Big Red hockey programs in general still always take up a massive place in their heart. I mean, later in the interview, a little bit of a spoiler, but they did regard how it was basically a priority overall just big red comes first Mm -hmm. yeah yeah what a true honor to talk to them it was truly an amazing experience as one of the two americans in this room uh (laughs) but hey you know that's still a fanboy moment in my book man you know hey what 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 an amazing opportunity yeah yeah it's crazy and to think you know a month ago we were up every night watching watching them play in beijing um, and seeing that journey and now being able to talk with them, it's, it's really special. But with that, we're going to throw it into the interview that we had with Micah and Coach Doug. Well, it is my honor to introduce to the Big Red in Beijing podcast, the second ever sophomore captain in Big Red women's hockey history, and now accomplished Olympic champion, Micah Zandihart, class of 2020. And I would also like to welcome back the always calm, cool, and collected coach of Big Red women's hockey and assistant coach of Team Canada, Coach Doug Dara, class of 1991. How are both of you doing today? I'm, I'm doing well. Thanks for the intro. I'm just uh, excited to be here, being on a podcast with Coach. That's that's a pretty cool experience, I think. <laughs> doing great as well and uh, looking forward to it. And Micah might disagree with you about always being calm and cool and collected. But... <laughs> well, I mean, you kind, of have, you kind of have that presence, Coach. You always, seem, you always seem to know what you're doing, like constantly. You always seem maintained. You seem orderly. I don't know, Coach. <laughs> now with what that, is it? Being... Make it till you make it, Coach? we've got to try at least (laughs) well actually the last time we talked with you coach you were just about to head out to Beijing from Calgary and since then of course Michael Farku is very proud of knowing this Team Canada went on to have one of if not the best tournaments in Olympic hockey history outscoring their opponents 57 to 10 those are whopper numbers going a perfect seven and zero, and of course claiming the gold medal against the rivals of the USA, which sort of pains uh, Alex and me. <laughs> so we have to yeah, ask. We Micah. like the big red. <laughs> <laughs> that is true though. That's big red first though. So yeah. we have to ask you, Micah, what do you think made this team so special? Uh, our coaches. <laughs> Ooh, all right, good. Good um, answer, good we answer. had we had great coaches but uh I would say it's kind of been said a lot but it was just the culture we had um and that's not even on the ice I don't think obviously 
like you said, we had a great tournament on the ice and we were a very good team and we had great players, but I think the kind of the secret to our success per se was the people we had in the locker room and that's our staff and our players included. And our focus for the past couple of years was just being a good teammate. That was literally mm-hmm. the first thing on, on every PowerPoint or every zoom call we had was being a good teammate. So I think that's ultimately what we focused on and, and kind of created that family connection uh, within our team. And then that translated on the ice. Now, how about you coach? You know, the team really was never phased it seems. So what do you think made this group particularly successful? I think, you know, to piggyback off what Micah said, it was the group coming together, uh, the communication within the group, the collaboration within the group, within the group. I think that came from, from top down from, you know, the head coach and Troy Ryan to the leader of hockey Canada and Gina Kingsbury right through to, you know, all the players. And I think we had established a way that we were going to do things and we had success with that early on and we had buy-in from everybody and everybody followed it throughout and you know I think early on in, in the quad and throughout the the four years and even at the start of this year we had our our ups and downs and I think that actually helped us because we learned that if we stuck to a certain plan and a certain way of doing things that we would have success and and everybody bought in in that regard well as an American, let me concede that it looks like you guys found the perfect formula, the perfect recipe for this time around. I have, we just have to admit that. We just have to. <laughs> now, Micah, you had a great tournament. So walk us through what it was like to finally play in your first Olympic Games, especially after a long road of injury and just a cut from centralization four years prior. Yeah, it was obviously a dream come true, as cliche as that sounds, but that's what it was for me. You know, that was my dream since I was four. So, you know, I said to someone the other day as walking out for opening ceremonies, it's, it was literally a, an out of body experience. Like you, you can't mm-hmm. feel your arms and legs, but you're walking out on the, into this stadium full of people and you're walking out under the Olympic rings and you're walking out with, you know, 214 other athletes from Canada. Uh, so that was kind of the, the, moment where I realized where I was and what I was doing. Um, and then I think, I think playing wise, you know, our team just focused so much on having fun. And I think for me going through injury and, and being cut in 2018, I had to, to re-realize that I play hockey because it's fun. I don't just play hockey because I wanted to win gold. I play hockey because it's what I love to do. So I think that ultimately helped me and our team uh, have success is just reminding ourselves that we're out here to have fun. And when we have fun, we actually tend to play better. Um, so that was kind of an important thing for me to learn over the past four years. And, and I think our team also learned that as well. Would you say there was sort of an adrenaline shot when you were just walking alongside your Canadian teammates? Yeah, definitely. And like, as you know, our captain Marie Philippe Poulin was one of the flag bearers. So to have her up there holding the flag, it, it kind of gave us even more of a connection to, to representing Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it was definitely, I don't think any of us could stop smiling uh, that whole time we were at the opening ceremonies. And Micah, you were the flag bearer for BC back in 2015, if I think that's correct. So did you have any tips for Poulin as she was heading <laughs> out for the ceremonies? Yeah, I definitely taught her everything. She <laughs> walked out there. <laughs> All right. Good, good to know. Good to know. But no, definitely, I think 
you know, everything that you touched on really fits with the goal song of Team Canada, years in the making. It was years in the making. Shout out to the Arcals. Uh, but it really fit, I think, this team's mantra and their experience uh, heading into the games. Uh, can you walk us through, though, that magical golden moment as Poulin off the draw fires the puck down the U.S. side, gets it away from Debian, and then the time finally hits zero? Can you walk us through those emotions? Yeah, I think, <laughs> you know, I was talking to a group of like grade one and two students. And I was trying to explain to them like what this moment felt like, which was very difficult, but you're, you're feeling everything at once. Like you're ultimately you're relieved. You're like, wow, the time ran out. We, we won, we did what we accomplished. And then you start thinking about, you know, what it took to get there. And then you start seeing people like me seeing coach and me seeing teammates that I'd been through so much with. And then you start crying because the emotions just kind of take over and, it's you're feeling so much at once that you can't really like put it into one word how it felt. Um, but obviously I think seeing, I think the coolest thing for me was seeing that it was my first time, obviously. So I was, I was very excited. I was almost shaking when I got my medal, but to see how excited the people on our team were, whose fourth Olympics it was, and to see that they were probably just as excited, if not more excited than me. And then I realized, you know, how special that moment really was. Shout out Rebecca Johnson, the Cornelian, right? Fourth, definitely. Fourth Olympics. But uh, definitely, was there anything unexpected, I guess, when you finally got that medal around your neck uh, in the celebratories afterwards, after the game? Uh, unexpected, I guess. I didn't, I didn't know the medals were that heavy. Uh, that's, that's definitely was my first shock, getting that around my neck. I realized how heavy they were. Um, and yeah, I think just cool, obviously it was, it was because of COVID, but to, to get your medal from a teammate and to give your, give a medal to a teammate, I think is, makes it all that more special. And it's something that we didn't get to do before. Um, and I kind of hope that it, it stays that way, uh, from here on out. That's a great point. Yeah. It's really special because of COVID and the pandemic that it worked out that way. And it was definitely great to hear the right national anthem and see the flags go up, uh, and the right order at the end of the game but coach moving on to you I, I think I don't know if you've heard but the tv I think captured pretty well uh your celebratory moment right as the the time hit zero so as we said you're known for at least having a calming presence and I think the same could be said for Troy Ryan too most of the time uh the head coach so what was it like for you to finally have that chance to celebrate the the golden moment I think it's all the things that Micah just talked talked about you know for us you know for the players they've dreamt of this their entire lives and and you've in some ways I've worked with all of them at some point whether it's been at Cornell or it's been through Hockey Canada and then to see them achieve the lifelong dream of, of the gold medal at the Olympics so it's that joy excitement exuberance you name it but I think also for us coaches you know it's the the pinnacle of women's hockey you you know, you, you strive to get to the, the top level and the Olympic gold is, is it. And so, and you know, the effort that has been put in by not just the players, but by the staff and, and the coaches. And it's like anything that you work with a, any organization, you know, and any people that have lifelong dreams. And as Micah said, we've been working towards these dreams our entire lives. And then all of a sudden to have that come to fruition um yeah everything just kind of comes out of you and 
even us calm, cool, and collected coaches get a little bit excited about it too. So it was, uh, and you know, you, you work so hard for it. You should, right. You, you've got to enjoy it. And it's also relief though, too. Like it's, you know, it's, uh, you know, you're, you're sitting there and, and you know, you've done all the work for, for four years and the players have done all this work for four years to get to this one moment. And yeah, it always comes down to, or it seems to most often come down to this one game against the USA. And, and so it's, uh, it's a big relief when you finally do it. Exactly. And especially it being hockey and Canada, there's that added pressure that, that comes with it. And I'm sure you know, coach, it's important to recognize too, I'm sure Micah can also attest to that is you as a coach have, have also played an important role on all of their journeys to the Olympics. So I'm sure it was extra special uh, for them to be able to have you there as well in that moment um, when they finally win the gold medal. Yeah, I mean, even when I, you know, wasn't at the Olympics and um, I can be a little bit sappy at some points, but I remember when the first group of Cornellians won the Olympic gold and we were watching it in the dressing room at Cornell. And I have to say it, it made me emotional. I think I really loved playing the game and it's certainly a lot of fun and, you know, it was a great experience, but I think what I love more about coaching is that you're trying your best to help somebody else achieve their dreams, you know, and, and at Cornell that could be, you know, for somebody like Micah, it's winning an Olympic gold medal. Maybe for some of the others on our team, it's, becoming a doctor or a surgeon and saving somebody's life or whatever it might be that their dream is, you want to try your best and do your best to help them achieve whatever that dream may be. And, and when it happens for them, um, there's nothing like it. Like when you know you've, maybe you've only played a little part in it, but you know you've played somewhat of a part in it and you've helped somebody achieve something that they've been working towards their whole lives. And, and that, that's what I, I, I love coaching more than I love playing for that reason. Yeah. And I know that uh, Mike and I watched every game. I specifically was up late. I didn't sleep at all during the Olympics. And, you know, while there were almost no times where we were ever worried about Team Canada, uh, there was the game versus the ROC where there was a big delay. Coach, can you walk us through your perspective of what you guys knew surrounding that game? There's a little bit of uncertainty in the air with COVID and all that stuff. Yeah, on our end, it was it was a bit strange. So what happened every day, uh, they had COVID testing. And so on that, the day before, I believe it was, there was a couple of players on the Russian team that tested positive. It might have been a couple of days before. It might have been the day before. You know, I'm trying to remember this exactly. But so then we had testing in the morning. And we as coaches didn't realize this, but they had not gotten their results back yet. And so we were concerned that if we went into that game onto the ice with them and played and they had some more positives on their team that we were then playing in that game, potentially we would then have some positives on our team going down the road of the Olympics and potentially have some players that couldn't play for us you know, through the important stretch of the Olympic period. So we were not comfortable in putting our team on the ice until we had heard that they got the results back and that they were negative. And so, um, so that's what the delay was originally. And then 
I believe if I remember correctly that the results did come in, but we still wanted to play with masks on and wanted the game to be played with masks on. So if I remember, or actually we didn't get the results back yet and we played with masks on, at least we started the game that way. And then the Russians got their results back. They decided not to play. I think it was the third period that they didn't play with masks on. We continued to play with our masks on because the last thing we wanted was, you know, a couple of our players or more test positive for COVID and now our team is depleted and, you know, we're in a, in a much tougher situation. So we made our players wear masks the, the entire game. Um, the results did come in, I think, in the middle of the game and they were negative. So they ended up taking off their masks. But um, that was yeah. that was sort of the story behind it. Yeah, and I was going to say, what a display of, of, of courage. And like it, that, that's just awesome to see because I've never seen that in my life. Uh, Hopefully you never do again. Almost an entire game <laughs> with masks on it. And, and, and yeah, that's what I wanted to ask is Micah, you know, going out in masks for almost an entire team and then, and then still beating them. You know, what was the feeling on the team about the whole situation? I can't imagine it was very, uh, I can imagine it was pretty difficult to play in masks or no. You know, it's funny. This is like the biggest question I get since I've been back is everyone wants to know what happened in that game and how it felt like how we survived. But I have to be honest with you. Most of uh, the girls on our team at some point or another had to skate with masks on during the pandemic. Um, I wasn't one of those players, but some of the provinces in Canada required that. So some girls had trained for three, four five months with masks on on the ice. So, and actually earlier that month, we'd even uh, worn masks on the ice um, as well. So I think when that happened for us, it was, I, to be honest, no one even blinked. Like it was like, okay, we're wearing masks. Like hopefully this game starts and whenever it starts, we'll be ready. And this is what we have to do. So let's do it. And I think because we had done that before, it, it wasn't actually as difficult as people kind of um, um, seemed to make it out to be. Um, and I think just also with, with everything that came the past two years in the pandemic, I think our team was ready for anything. And we knew at some point in the Olympics, we were probably going to have to do something like this. Like something was bound to happen where one day maybe wasn't quite how we planned it. So I think we were prepared to adapt and obviously we did. I think the biggest thing was it was hard to drink water with a mask on because we we have a mask on and then a yeah. cage. Yeah. Every time you wanted to drink water, you had to take your cage off and your mask off. So I think we're all a little bit dehydrated after, but that was, that was our biggest problem, I think. Yeah, that's brutal. And the entire team certainly became an internet sensation overnight against the (laughs) anti-masker crowd. I'll say that. And uh, I know that uh, you certainly showed on the ice why you are one of the best two-way players, you know, getting assists on one end and laying your body at the other. And what about your game? Do you think, uh, went right to help lead Canada to victory the most, do you think? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, obviously you talked about earlier, our team, you know, 57 goals, four and seven games is, is pretty good. (laughs) Um, I think we set a tournament record actually. So I think that's for me as a, as a defenseman who definitely as coach can attest to probably leans more towards the defensive side of the game. Um, it was easy for me to kind of just fall into that role. And, and I knew in those big moments or whether it was on the penalty kill or, you know, in games against the U S that that's what I was relied on to do. Um, and, you know, with injury over the past year, my game kind of went like this, trying to find my groove again, but I always knew I could rely on, on the defensive side of things. So 
when you play on a really good team, it's, it's easy to kind of just fall into your role and, and have confidence in that role and, and do what you can to, to help. And you also played a role in getting the team energized. I remember right before game one, I think against Switzerland, did you do something like a toe pick or some sort of move? <laughs> yeah. uh, do you want to speak to that? Cause yeah. Could hear a great it. Move. yeah. Um, well, yeah, I'm, I'm actually pretty clumsy. I've, I've been known to, to feature myself on a few dart gun videos of coaches over my college career. Um, so anyways, I was about to go out for my first shift and, they had just, uh, they were reviewing a goal. So we ended up just waiting for the face-off for like five minutes. And my D partner and I was both of our very first shift of the Olympics. And, uh, I just, I don't know what I was doing. I was skating around and then I wanted to see what the ref was going to do. Cause I thought they were going to make the call and I turned and heel picked and fell like right on my back. And sure enough, like our whole team was laughing. I think their team was probably laughing. And honestly, it was probably a good thing it happened. It kind of brought the heart rates down of at least me and, and Belle, my partner. So um, it wasn't the worst time to, to heel pick at the Olympics. At least it wasn't during the whistle. So, yeah, well, I was going to say that definitely made the crowd or the bench <clears throat> energized and we could see that uh, through the screen. But Mike, you got to work on that story. That's got to be something like I planned that to loosen up. The yeah, <laughs> I thought maybe it was like you pulled off some Topic and hockey skates. I was like, what? Uh, uh, I, uh, I will. I'll work on a story. <laughs> I will. But coach, obviously one of the notable lines of the tournament uh, was Pooh, Jenner and Nurse. I mean, you've got the GOAT tournament MVP and I guess the best Olympic hockey tournament of anyone ever with, with nurse getting the most points. So, but if I'm right, am I right in saying that that line actually didn't start out together um, at the beginning of the, of the games? No, they didn't. Um, we've had, you know, Pula and Jenner had played together most of this year. Uh, this is the first year that we really, I mean, Jenner's played a little bit of wing in the past, but you know, we talked to her early on uh, about potentially playing on the wing and, and um, she was fine with that. So, um, and then of course, when you hear you're playing with Poulin, that doesn't uh, hurt either. Um, so her and Poulin have been, been pretty steady together, uh, but we've been rotating sort of who the other winger would be on that line. And it, and it didn't start out with, uh, with Nurse. It started with Clark um, and then actually... It was a bit by accident that we tried nurse up there not by accident per se, but um, Clark couldn't play one of the games. And I believe that was the game that we moved nurse up on that wing and we really liked it from then on. And um, it, it stuck, obviously it, uh, it worked. Wow. What, what a great, that's a good, that's crazy how that happens. And coach, I was wondering if, I don't know if you noticed, but I was something I was, I was watching old video and I realized I think Jenner and, and Sonier, they switched numbers from Cornell now internationally. They were 11 and 19 at Cornell, and now they're, they're switched uh, 19 and 11. So I don't know if you noticed that, but that was a weird coincidence, <laughs> I guess, just the way it works. But I didn't. I actually don't know how they might, might be able to fill me in on this. I, mean, <laughs> I think after me being with Team Canada since 2000, what, that 12 years I've been with Team Canada, I still don't really know how they get their numbers. So maybe Mike could fill me in on that. Uh, I'm not sure if that's something that Bree and Jill chose specifically or if that was something that was given yeah, to them. I don't, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't know. I wasn't obviously I wasn't in the program when they started in the program. So I don't know how that came about. But I know for most of us, you either 
you get given a Jersey when you go to a tournament. And if that's a number you like, you kind of roll with it. And if it's not, maybe sometime down the road, you try changing it depending Mm -hmm. on who's in the program or not. But, um, for most of us, it was like, maybe at some point you got three or four choices and you just picked one. And mm-hmm. often it wasn't the one that you probably used, you wore in college <laughs> or, or something like that. And I don't know if Jill and Jenner planned that, but Jenner still calls Jill a ones. So they, <laughs> they yeah. Still, yeah, they still kind of, uh, or sorry, Jill started, still calls Jenner ones. So they still have their, their nicknames from college, despite not wearing the same numbers. Oh, that's cool. I mean, yeah, if you're on the team, I'll take any number. That's for sure. <laughs> So let's transition from the Olympic Games to the actual environment itself in Beijing. So let's talk about the Olympic Village. Was it what you had expected in general? Um, I think for me, I didn't really have an expectation. I'd obviously never seen an Olympic Village. So I I didn't know other than Vancouver. And Vancouver was kind of weird because it was in the middle of Vancouver. And that's like home to me. So it didn't seem any different. Um, but for this one, we were pretty like, we were in a closed loop system. So it was like very locked down on where we could go. So it felt like we were basically in this like bubble in like plopped in the middle of Beijing. And it was just a bunch of residence towers and, um, the dining hall and like a few kind of like a mall area where there were some shops and and things you could get souvenirs at. Um, but other than that, there was like a walking loop that I know coach did some runs around, uh, while he was there and that was, that was pretty much it. (laughs) All right. Now you, you mentioned the Vancouver Olympics, I guess, quickly, did you get to go to those as a, as a kid, obviously you're from, uh, Victoria, I guess, and Nichiden just outside, but, uh, did you get to go to Vancouver 2010? Yeah, I was uh, fortunate enough. My family got tickets to the the semifinal against Finland. So I got to watch our, our women's team play Finland uh, in the semifinal in like a sold out, you know, Rogers Arena crowd. Wow. So um, that was a pretty cool experience for me. Obviously, always wanting to go to the Olympics to get to experience it uh, kind of close up. Uh, mm-hmm. Definitely solidified my dream to, to go there on my own someday. Wow. And I, I think this, these games were the, the last one since then where the rink size was NHL sized. I, I might be wrong on that, but I guess you got to go to the two where, where that happened. So that's pretty yeah. cool. Well, there was also a quite special moment when you ran into none other than Lenka Sirdar. And we actually had Lenka on the podcast here before the games. She was super energetic, extremely friendly. And, you know, we loved talking with her. So we have to ask you, what was it like to see your former Welch's fruit snacks eating teammate, someone you probably haven't seen in years at such a special event? Yeah, it was cool. Obviously, um, Lenka and I became pretty good friends at, at Cornell. But when we first came, actually, I was like super patriotic to Canada, obviously. And she was actually like a super patriotic American being from Boston. Um, she loves her yep. sports teams and she's very passionate. So we actually butted heads quite a bit our first year. I think we were both just super competitive, but then kind of over the four years we were there, we, we really became close. We kind of bonded in that, in that competitive attitude that we had. Um, so to see her accomplish that dream as well and, and see her play for Czech and, and kind of um, honor her family in a way, her parents are both, both from there. So I think it was always something that she, she wanted to do and she kind of hummed and hawed on, but to see her commit to that and hear about 
all the places she's been over the past few years um, and still obviously has a dream to go to dental school and become a dentist. It's, it's pretty cool. And I mean, I believe you briefly mentioned this and it's also according to our research, if, if I recall correctly, she was in the same freshman class as you. So you guys obviously go very way back, I assume. Yeah, we, yeah, we came in as freshmen and then um, we played our first two years together. And then I took a year off because uh, I was centralized and then mm-hmm. I came back for, for her senior year. So we played uh, three years together, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And now I guess coach, did you also get a chance to see Lenka or did you not because, you know, you were living out in the village and, you know, it just didn't work out? Yeah, so I was actually living in a hotel mm-hmm. outside of the village. Uh, so they had some hotels that were designated just for staff um, and people in the Olympics so that, again, you don't lose that bubble or the loop. Um, so I wasn't actually staying in the village, but I'd come in every morning basically and then go back to the hotel at night. Um, and so it was interesting because uh, I might even have it on my computer here, but uh, I was walking in one day from the hotel into the village and you go through a little entranceway. And as I was walking in, who was walking out, but Micah and Lenka were walking out, they were going <laughs> to the mall. So I saw them walking out and that was, uh, I think that was the first time I saw Lenka while I was, uh, while I was there, but uh we had been uh, going back and forth before the Olympics and, and we had the, uh, I ate at the same dining hall as, as everybody too. So every once in a while I'd search for some of the Czech players and see if I could find her. And, and then I also, you know, having played in Europe for a long time, there's uh, other coaches that were there that uh, I actually played with and against while I was in Europe. So they were coaching various teams uh, throughout the Olympics too. So it was kind of fun to, to see them. And actually some of their kids were actually playing in the Olympics too. So that was the, uh, tells you my age now, I guess, but, uh, yeah. So it was, it was, it was fun for me. I I didn't know some of them were going to be there and then I just went to the dining hall and I'm like, yeah, coaching on other teams. So that was most of them were on the men's side. So it was kind of fun to to catch up with them. I hadn't seen them in probably 25 years or so. Wow. Mm -hmm. You got to look for the Welch's snack at the cafeteria and then maybe you'll, you'll find Lanka. Yeah. Yeah. I'm assuming she still gives like the hardest, what's it called, like fist bumps, right? For sure. For sure yeah. she does. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And now, Micah, can you tell us more about, you know, how you got started in hockey? I know you mentioned you went to the 2010 uh, Olympic Games. Is that where your Olympic dream began or did it go back even further than that? Um, you know, I played pretty much every sport growing up. I uh, actually I played, I played baseball even before I played hockey and I loved baseball and I played uh, soccer, basketball, pretty much everything I could do. I played. And I think when I was about four was when, or I guess five was when the 2002 Olympics were happening. And at that time I was just getting into sports, um, like T-ball and stuff. And I was playing street hockey out in front of my house. Cause my older brother, Ben played hockey and I wanted to be like him. So I was just getting into sports and I remember watching the Olympics and I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. Like athletes from all over the world and like they're, it's bringing people together, but they're competing and all these different sports. And I just remember thinking that was really cool. And I actually probably wanted to go to the Olympics before I wanted to, you know, go to the Olympics for hockey. Um, and then obviously I fell in love with hockey a few years later and never really looked back, but it definitely started um, pretty, pretty early for me um at least going to the olympics and that was always my dream from a from an early age 
So is that right? We can thank Jaina Hefford's uh, iconic goal for maybe the Micah that we have today for, for, that, for that gold medal win. Yeah, I don't know if I don't know if I could tell you about the goals. Honestly, from a young age, I was such a defenseman. Like I always wanted to protect the goalie. So that probably wasn't what stood out to me in that game at the time. Now I could look back at it and be like, yeah, that's pretty nice. But at the time, I probably loved the fact that they were like hitting each other into the boards and, and that kind of stuff. Awesome. Physicality of the game is awesome. And I mean, and that was truly wonderful to see as well. You know, women's hockey at the Olympics is is still just as much a blood sport as it is in men's hockey. And that was truly awesome to see. And as we mentioned before on this podcast, Micah, you're truly a trailblazer in the truest sense of the word, you know, from Sinichton, BC. You're the first women's ice hockey player from BC to play in the Olympics uh, for Canada. You're not only a leader on the ice, but a mentor to kids from Victoria. So, you know, we have to ask, you know, who... Are, are the people that most inspire you, you know, to keep doing what you do? Yeah, uh, it's, a, I mean, it's a long list of people. I think um, for me, it started with my family. I come from a pretty big family. I'm the youngest of four kids. So I always looked up to my three older siblings and uh, my mom kind of raised the four of us on her own for most of the time. So I also looked up to her and how she kind of managed our family and, and kind of was a leader of our family. I always thought that was pretty cool. Um, and I think from a hockey perspective, I think what always inspires me is kind of the women that came before us. So, you know, these, these women like Jaina Hefford, as you mentioned, and all these women that won like four Olympic gold medals in a row and played hockey with such grit in a time when women didn't make anything for hockey, you know, they were just fighting to be on the ice and being able to play. And now for me to be able to play and, you know, like have it as my career per se right now, I feel very fortunate and I feel like I owe it to them, you know, to make the most of this time that I get to wear the Jersey. And then I think the, the other side of that is I'm always inspired by the next generation. And obviously being from BC, I know that I didn't necessarily have someone very close to me to look up to that could, I could kind of follow their path. So it inspires me to kind of, like I said, leave the Jersey in a better place for the next girls coming up and, and make sure I do whatever I can to, to make sure that they stick with their dream. Cause uh, a lot of girls in sport don't, cause they don't see a future in it, but hopefully I can be kind of that poster child for some small communities in BC that, that maybe you can do more, more with hockey than you might think uh, when you're in high school or middle school. Well, I, I was really amazing and quite touching. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I was going to ask, you mentioned you had uh, some siblings. Was there ever any sibling rivalry, you know, attached to uh, sports or anything when you were growing up? Um, not too much uh, in sports. My siblings are 12 and seven years older than me. So anytime I tried to compete with them, I had no chance. Um, but I, we definitely had some competition around the table playing cards or board games and like stuff like that growing up that I could maybe be on their same level as, but anything physical, I, I had no hope at that age for sure. And we saw Cornell have an unfortunate end this year, um, in the ECDAC uh, playoffs against Colgate. It was really close, but obviously more recently was the NCAA championship. So I kind of have to ask, were you going for the Ohio state? Buckeyes, who I think had a few BC players, and you mentioned, you know, the, the up and coming BC hockey players. Or I know you also mentioned earlier your line mate, um, who going, coming from uh, Minnesota Duluth from the Bulldogs. So, who were you cheering? Did, did you were you cheering for anyone, or are you just kind of happy for the sport and in that championship? 
Uh, I, can, I can say that I was definitely cheering for individual players uh, to have good games. Obviously, I've there were six British Columbians in that game, and all of them I'd, I'd kind of coached or come across at some point or another. So it was very cool to see them have that experience. But I'm like Cornell to the core, so I have a very hard time cheering for any other team than, than the Big Red. So I don't think I was rooting for a specific team, but I definitely wanted those individual players to do well. Yeah, your priorities straightened out. Big Red always comes first. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now, also on the ice, we see or rather saw the USA and Canada go head to head. And as I have said, it's one of the biggest rivalries in sports, period. But at the end of the day, you guys are close friends and teammates who are trying to grow the sport as, as you briefly touched upon. Now, I am a curious guy coach. Is the same said for the fellow coaches on the American bench? Are you guys close to when all is said and done? Or is there some rivalry there off the ice? I think it's the same as the players. It's, um, you know, you have certain players that you bond with off the ice and you compete with, you know, on the ice. It's like she talked about Lenka there earlier. Like, I don't think anybody liked competing against Lenka in practice. You know, that's okay. just the way it was, but they were all friends once they got away from the rink and, and they got out of it. And, you know, and coming from guys hockey, I remember, you know, guys would get in fights on the ice and then after the game, they'd be sitting around having a, shouldn't say it, but having a beer after the game or whatever <laughs> and, uh, and hanging out, you know? So, um, but it's the same thing in, in coaching. There's some coaches that you're really close to and maybe some coaches that you're not so close to. And, um, and that's, you know, but certainly, it's just like with the players it's you know once the game time comes you're competitors and, and you compete and then once the game is over you're human beings and some of them are your are your good friends some of them are your acquaintances and some of them you probably can't be bothered with so it just depends on on the people yeah, that, that's fair enough and but we are like a fraternity like the players you know it's uh we we understand each other we know what we we go through and we like to bounce things off each other and, and we're as a group, we're pretty collaborative, for sure. Yeah, I suppose that's just how the cookie crumbles, c'est la vie, you know, just in that regard. That Speaking of competitors coming together, we talked before about how Canada had some former ECAC competitors on the roster. So we always have to ask, Coach, are you a little worried about coaching against Sarah Fillier next year? Yes. Really? <laughs> wow. Look at that. All right. Looks like she got her. You know, so it's, but it's, you know, it's great for the ECAC to have players like Sarah Fillier in the mm -hmm. ECAC and great for the Ivy league. You know, I look at it every year from when I've started to where we are now. I, I love the fact that it, it's really competitive from top to bottom. And, you know, I always say to our players, if you're not ready to play, on a certain night, it doesn't matter which team you're playing now you'll lose. And I don't know if I would have said that, you know, back when I first started, we had some really strong teams that even if we had a really bad night, we might've still won those games. That's not the case anymore in women's hockey. And I think the sport is just, uh, and the players have just gotten stronger all the way through, but yeah, Sarah Fillier is one of the best players in the world. So yeah, you've got to be concerned about, um, about coaching against her. And, uh, but it's great for our league that we have her in our league and we have players of that caliber and it's, a, it's an exciting challenge. That's what we compete for. We love the challenge and we love the, uh, love the competitiveness. So the more competitive, the better. 
I can't say I've heard such a response so humble yet bold. I don't know. That, that was something something awe-inspiring, one could say. But it actually, it goes without saying, but obviously we will be cheering hard for the Big Red in those matchups next year. And Alex, hopefully you get the cowbell really loud in those games against Sarah Fillier, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. well, we'll have some players that people will be scared about too. So it's, it's, uh, it goes all the way around. But the Ivy League is going to be really strong next year. It's going to be awesome. So, Yep. Also, oh, also, Coach, this one we have all really been curious about. Did you notice anything different about coaching the four Cornellians this go-around versus back in their collegiate days? That's a good question. Um, yeah, I think it is, you know, it's a different environment. You're on the world stage. You're competing with the world's best. Mm-hmm. Um, and college hockey, uh, uh, you know, the NCAA from a league standpoint, I mean, the PWHPA and the PHL have now started professional leagues, but I don't think on a day in day out uh, basis, they're as competitive as the NCAA is. And so, um, but it's not, it's not USA against Canada. It's not the best players in the world against the best players in the world every night. And so it is um, a little bit different and the players maybe have to play a little bit differently and play a different role when they're playing on team Canada versus when they're playing at Cornell. So, you know, it's, it's like we say with players coming from high school and junior to Cornell, they might've been the power play player and the top scorer and all of that. And then maybe we're thinking of them more as somebody we're using in a defensive role or on the penalty kill. It's the same thing for team Canada. Yeah. You might've been the top scorer in the ECAC or a top scorer at Cornell, but now you're going to team Canada where each player is the top scorer from wherever they were. Right. So you've got to be able to show sometimes that you can fulfill a different role uh, on team Canada. And that's the way to, to be a part of it. You know, if they ask you to be a penalty killer, can you fulfill that role? And, and right. you know, if you can, then you got a good chance of, of playing, but so, yeah. So those players, do take on different roles when they're at the national team level than maybe when they're playing at the club level, like, or the collegiate level at Cornell. Sounds like a game of constant adaptation, which I mean, may serve in hand as to why Canada was so powerful this time around. And a lot of them are getting, you know, they're, uh, they've grown, uh, they've developed They're they're not 18 year olds anymore. Some of them are in their thirties. And so I think we all, hopefully we all grow and develop and, learn things over the course of time and um so we become a little bit different in that regard and you have to coach them a little differently than maybe you did when they were 18 too mm-hmm. and coach we were, we were listening to a, i think chicklets which uh natalie spooner was on and she talked about how cornell was one of the schools she was looking at do you remember some of the canadian national team players when they came to visit cornell even though maybe they didn't end up deciding to come here do you remember their visit everyone yes Oh, geez. <laughs> uh, it's a tough business. It's a tough business. Obviously, some went well and some didn't go so well. But yeah, when you, uh, as a coach, when you don't do a good job and you realize that they're not coming, you, you feel terrible and it's it's tough. And and then when you you do get a, a caliber national team player like Micah, you're on, you're on top of the world. So um, I think sometimes you, as a young coach, I didn't realize. Um, I remember you know, sort of my first recruited class included Rebecca Johnson. And um, I got a call from a, another coach and 
you know, and, and they were like, oh, congratulations on Rebecca coming to Cornell. And I said, yeah, it should help us, you know, kind of sort of playing the, I, I, you know, I, I was new to coaching in general at that point. And he laughed at me. He was like, he's like, should help you. He said, coach, you should be doing cartwheels down the hallway right now. <laughs> so anyway, so yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's part of the challenge, right? It's part of the competitiveness. And um, you hope that it's a good fit. And um, sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. Everybody's got different priorities and different things they're looking for. But we are fortunate at Cornell. And I still do believe that we're the school that can offer the best of both worlds. You know, where else can you get the education that you can get and then play at a school where I would say ice hockey's the number one sport, but certainly one of the top sports uh, at Cornell. And, and that's unusual in the United States where ice hockey is the, the big sport on campus. And so, um, so certainly there's a, a great atmosphere, great fan support, uh, great tradition for ice hockey. And then on the flip side of it, you get an Ivy League education at a school where you can study just about any subject you can think of. And, and it's a really nice location in my eyes too. So, but. Well, I would say obviously the, I'm biased. Yes, I would say the number one sport on campus. Yeah, we we might be a little biased too. Uh, I I'll just bet on it was maybe a rainy day when 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 she came to town. So it was a, <laughs> but uh, I, we have to ask Micah. Uh, was there any special moments? Obviously, because family couldn't be there um, for for numerous reasons, but largely the pandemic. Uh, bringing the gold medal back and getting the, getting to celebrate with them. Was there any moment that stuck out in particular um, when you landed back in Canada? Yeah, it was pretty special for me. I uh, came home to like uh, quite a few people at the airport. I guess they had kind of organized like a little uh, gathering at the airport to welcome me home. So uh, I came off a little flight from Vancouver to Victoria, which is like a tiny plane. Um, similar to some of the ones that come into Ithaca every once in a while. Um, so I came off the plane, I was the last one off the plane and sure enough, like my family and all these people are like ringing cowbells and making all this noise for everyone who came off the plane. Cause they didn't know when I was going to walk through the door. So everyone on my flight got a cheering applause when they came through the doors. And then, um, I think just hugging my mom, when I came through the door, um, my mom did a a ton to get me where I am today and, and sacrificed a lot and, and never told me that I couldn't do what I wanted to do. So, um, yeah, to, to see her and, and her reaction and going to kind of get to hug her after not seeing her for a while was probably the most special moment for me. And then just same with all my family members and seeing how excited they got to see the medal and them not really realizing how big of a part they played in getting me getting the medal, you know, they kind of, they're like, it's yours. And I'm like, no, actually it's, it's yours. Trust me. Um, and those moments were really special for me. Well, that's amazing. And, you know, I'm sure that's a good moment for everyone. You talked about being only four or five and having an Olympic dream and it's great. It really shows, I guess, a testament to, to your mother to be able to help foster that and, and get, get us to this moment where we are today. So, but I also want to talk a little bit about, we, I know coach, I think touched it on a little bit earlier, but for those of the listeners who don't know, obviously there's still um, a current, I would say, you know, fight for a unified league in professional women's hockey, where um, really the players can be able to afford to, to play the sport that they love um, at a reasonable, you know, wage amongst other things. So can you speak to the work that you and, your teammates and even some of the USA um, competitors are, are doing to continue and promote uh, women's hockey. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's a united front, as you said. It's players coming together from many different countries to to try and create this league that um, I think women's hockey deserves to have after all these years and, and something that's not going to last for, you know, one or two years, but something that's going to last for 10, 15 years down the road that, that girls, you know, who are four or five can aspire to play in. And, you know, that includes a lot of players and I wouldn't even include myself in this because I'm still only two years out from graduating, but a lot of my teammates who were in the prime of their careers, took this opportunity to kind of take a stand and play less games in a year to ultimately hopefully have a league down the road. So it's pretty selfless in my opinion for a lot of those players to kind of put their own careers in a difficult situation for the future of the game. Um, And yeah, that just includes playing games, you know, all over North America and trying to get in the room with the right people that can kind of help us, help us accomplish this dream. Um, and I think, I think for me, the, the cool part or like the exciting part about it is obviously coach talked about, you know, Canada versus USA at the Olympics. And that's, that's 46 players. Right. And there's a lot more elite women's hockey players that deserve to have an opportunity to, to dream, to play somewhere. Um, that's not, you know, a roster of 23. So it's exciting for me to think that more of these elite players coming out of the NCAA and, and maybe not maybe coming out of the U sport league in Canada as well and other countries to be able to, to keep playing hockey and not have to give it up because the Olympic dream didn't work out for them. And I'm not mistaken. I think the PWHPA and the PHF heads are in the next little bit are, are leading a discussion to discuss more. I think that was in the news. So hopefully a solution can, can be reached uh, eventually and, and, and soon, because as you said, it's so important for not only people like yourself who are at the top of the sport, you know, those top 46, but also all professional women's hockey players everywhere. Definitely. Yeah. yeah I think we're optimistic that something will happen uh, hopefully in the next couple of years. So mm-hmm. Yes, let's hope. And, and I would actually like to shout out the Noxie and Cax uh, podcast. I don't know if, 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 ever, if any of our listeners have heard of it. I, I follow it. It's, it's uh, produced by the PWHPA and I guess the Steve Dangle podcast network. And it's, it's a great list. And I think actually Jill was, was on there a, a few weeks back, which was pretty cool to see. So definitely take, check that out to, to keep updated if you're, if you're for, all, for all of our listeners. But um, obviously that uh, that's a great time. And I think it was really cool as well to see the, uh, you know, we did talk about the top 46 players, though, that rivalry match in Pittsburgh, uh, the Canadian tuxedos with the with the entrance. And then obviously getting that winner, Poulin, some, somehow does it again, uh, amazes all of us. But uh, do you know if there's plans, Micah, I guess, for more similar things like that eventually in other cities, like other than Pittsburgh, I guess, or towns where they could still use that promotion? Or is it? as though rivalry games, I guess, done for now. I think the, I think the rivalry games will be done for now um, just to give, you know, players some time off after a, a pretty, pretty rigorous two years of, of training, you know, in backyards and, and getting ready for the Olympics in a situation where it wasn't always ideal. So I think um, some, some well-deserved time off for a lot of those players, but I know that the PWHPA does have have a few more showcases planned for, for the players that weren't at the Olympics. So, so they'll continue with those. I think there's two or three more left of those. Um, And then, yeah, who knows in the future of the league, if, if that's something that will continue or, or kind of where women's hockey will go. I think we're all kind of just, just waiting to hear uh, kind of what the landscape will look like for the next Olympic cycle. Yeah, it's great to hear. 
Well, Michael, just to say in addition to what Michael had already touched upon, that's already a very noble cause to which you're committing yourself. So hopefully it all goes the right way. And I suppose history can be written in a positive light in that sort of regard. Yeah, definitely. Like I said, I was I was in university when the PWHPA started, so I wasn't really a part of getting things going, but I definitely um, I am inspired by a lot of my teammates that kind of put their heads together to, to make this happen and committed to it. And I came out of college into this association that I could be a part of to try and grow the game. So I feel mm -hmm. pretty fortunate. Now, coach, this is more a future question. Obviously, you had to make some sacrifices to coach at the Olympics, of course, including missing seniors night this year. But is it safe to say you would welcome another opportunity like this again in, you know, let's say four years from now? You put me on the spot, are you? Oh, we kind of have to, Coach. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Certainly, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the experience this year that, uh, that we had. And if the situation was right, um, I would certainly consider it again. I've you know, as I said, I've been involved with Team Canada since 2010 and, um, and I've had some thoughts about it in other years and it just, it didn't work out for, I guess, scheduling reasons and it just wasn't the right time for, um, but I was fortunate this year that both Gina Kingsbury from Hockey Canada and Andy Noel here at Cornell gave me the flexibility to be able to do both. And um, that allowed me to have this opportunity um, to be able to go back and forth. And certainly I was, uh, loved the, the, the chance to do it, enjoyed every moment. It, it made it challenging though on both ends because I wasn't there for everything that happened with the Olympic team all the way through. And then I wasn't here for everything that happened with the Cornell team all the way through. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure at this point whether, you know, I'd love to be able to do it, but, um, but I hated the fact that it did take away somewhat from some things that uh, were going on back here. And when I was back here, I felt like I was missing some things that were going on there. So, um, but you know, four years is uh, a bit of a ways away. So never say never. And uh, certainly I was very fortunate and, and honored and had a great experience this go around. And uh, I definitely would not say that I would turn it down at this point, but I, you know, situation would have to be right. A little bit of a gray answer you're giving us there, coach, but we'll yeah, I'm, I'm walking a line there for sure. <laughs> no, but I, it's I, totally... sure you know, I, I love the experience. Uh, you know, it was great this time around, but uh, totally we'll, see, we'll see what uh, what Hockey Canada wants to do for their future and see how things are going here at Cornell, too. Well, you don't have to worry about me twisting your wrist, wrist coach. I am not NBC. <laughs> <laughs> not with that. Micah, don't think you escaped too easily either, because I am sure you also have your eyes set on 2026 as well. But... I also have to shout out the Cornell psychology department since I am also a psychology major. So do you have plans to use that degree once your career, your accomplished career is said and done, hopefully many, many years from now? 
Yeah, I don't I don't really know um, what the future after after hockey or alongside hockey will look like. I definitely I want to hopefully go to the next Olympics or at least go through the next cycle of trying to get there, play hockey for as long as my my body allows. But mm. in terms of my degree, I would love to go back to school and get my master's in um, sports psychology or performance psychology. Um, not not saying that I def I for sure want to be like a sports psychologist. I. I also have a love for coaching and for teaching. So that's just something that I know I, I can do and whether I use it, you know, formally or not, it will, it will help me in my life no matter what. And I think after going to Cornell and being a student athlete, I, I crave having both. I like being in the classroom and being on the ice. Sometimes being on the ice, you get too much in your head and sometimes being in the classroom and studying too much, then, you know, you're missing the other yeah. side of things. So I like that balance. So I'd, I'd lo- like to go back to school at some point. I just got to, like coach said about right time, that's got to be the right time and the right fit. I got you. Actually, sports psychology is an extremely interesting, I guess, a niche of a field or just a field in general. I mean, speaking as a podcaster and broadcaster, it's extremely applicable in all these athletic scenarios and situations. Let me tell you about it. (laughs) And of course, I mean, with that, we have to thank you both, Micah and Doug, for Coming on to this week's podcast, we greatly appreciate you guys sparing your time with us and just showing us what it's like to basically be medal-winning champions of your nation, um, a nation of which our producer, Michael Farku, is very proud of. <laughs> As he's wearing, well, the, obviously the viewers or listeners can't see what he's wearing, but he's probably wearing a Team Canada jacket. So, of course, again, we... we today. <laughs> We know you are both so busy, but we really, really, really appreciate you guys taking the time. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. It was a lot of fun. And uh, congratulations, Michael, on the gold medal. Thank you, Coach. (laughs) I'll throw it in there one more time for you. (laughs) That's good. That's good. It's always great to hear from Doug Dare. Of course, we welcome him back on the pod after a while. We talked to him before the Olympics. And, of course, thank you. Big thank you to Micah Zandihart uh, for joining us. And, you know, what what a true honor. That's all I'll say. And I'll leave it at that. What a true honor. And thank you for making, you know, this project of Big Red in Beijing so special for us. It was a true honor. Let alone possible in the first place now that we think about it. Because again, these are world-class athletes and they made time for us for this Cornell, essentially Cornell-sponsored podcast. So it just goes to show again, like I mentioned earlier, Cornell University still has a massive place in their hearts. And it seems to, it just goes to show how connected they are to the community here. Mm -hmm. It just simply just goes to show. And it's, it's awesome working with the Cornell women's hockey team and program obviously this podcast wouldn't be possible without all the connections that they've been able to to support us with to get these interviews and Mm -hmm. it's really been a great opportunity for all of us and we really hope that you as the listener have enjoyed listening to these podcasts Uh, but again just talking with them and getting to hear their experience and see how olympic dreams become reality was was truly special so thanks again to the both of them but with that i think that closes off this week's episode 
look forward to more episodes in the future where hopefully we can sit down with some more Olympic champions and, and hear their story on the podcast. But for now, that is all. 